I don't know. I always like. I always like the. I always. I have to say, I always enjoy talking like Dread, even though I. That's never how Dread sounds like in my in my brain. So. Oh, now I'm curious. What does Dread sound like in your brain? I don't really know. I mean, I don't really know. I think I he's. Uh, I think part of it is, of course, because I try to put on the authoritarian voice, like, and 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 he just is. Um, it just comes naturally to him. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's it. Like, Dread doesn't have a, a lot know, Dredd, of effect. Dread just demands authority. Yeah, he, exactly. He demands people just listen to him, and you're like, and I have to work at it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Just the fact that, yeah, I'm like Garth Ennis, just the fact that I'm trying too hard means that I'm failing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Drock, a monthly podcast wherein we read through the Judge Dread the Complete Case Files uh, as they come out, one after another. And with me is my talented, ever sharp, ever brilliant co host, Graham McMillan. Hi. Hi. How are you, how are you all doing, everyone? I, to prove I'm sharp, I didn't mute myself. <laughs> That is impressive. That, nor did I, and I was supposed to. And I, I am, uh, I'm Jeff Lester, and we are coming to you live from the corner of Armand de Sante block, um, conveniently located near the, hi, I'm Pat Mills, and I created Rico Dread Pedway. <laughs> oh, I can tell we're going to have fun with this already. <laughs> um, this is when I'm going to tell all of you that we are doing Judge Dread the Complete Case Files Volume 23 this episode, which is made up of 2080 Progs 940 through 959 and Magazine, sorry, Judge Dread Magazine Volume 2 issues 81 through 83 and Volume 3 issues 1 through 7. Uh, the creative lineup for this book is nuts. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, oh, there, you can't, um, you can't even believe the names. I mean, in the sense of there's so many people involved in this. Yeah. John Wagner writes the majority of it, but there's also Garth Ennis, there's Pat Mills, there's Robbie Morrison, there's Gordon Rennie, there's Chris Stanley, and there's Jim Alexander as writers. Artists include, and this is by no means a complete list, mm -hmm. Carlos Esquera, Mike McMahon, uh, John Higgins is in there, Chris Weston's in there, Steve Sampson, Trevor Hairsign, Anthony Williams, Nick Percival, Paul Johnson. There's a lot of people involved in this volume. Yeah. I should also say all these stories come from 1995, which I think is the first time in a while we've had stories all came out in the same year. 1995, of course, also the year the Judge Dredd movie comes out. That's right, which is, uh, which is uh, maybe I may have had a slight choice about my block, and certainly, as far as I can tell, seems to um, have had influence in uh, their decision to have Pat Mills return to Judge Dredd for the first time in a while. And doing a, a retread of, of one of his famous stories as well. Yes. Not, not just not just returning, returning to basically rewrite himself. Yeah, yeah. It's it's this really genuinely is an odd volume. It is, as the creative list might suggest, it's all over the place. It it's not one of the volumes where we're like, well, one person was in charge and they clearly had a through line. They've clearly did not. Yeah, you know, but I, I, 
weirdly, the flip side of this is, um, for me, I think that this has uh, a lot of pretty good, a lot of pretty good dread stories in it. It's, it does. That that's the strange thing. Mm-hmm. It's there is there are so many people involved, mm-hmm. but honestly, the the quality is is pretty good it's not it's by no means up there with the best thread like let's let's just no put that out there right no now. absolutely not but it is far from the worst yeah you know? and also it's arguably better than what we've been reading in the last few volumes i think so as well i think so as well which is kind of which is kind of surprising uh i you know through whatever confluence of factors i think we are starting to see um, a point where dread has become a something that people are finally understanding kind of how to get, you know, not just in the John Wagner who's able to, you know, craft a, a compelling Judge Dread story, um, and then, you know, various people doing their cover band versions of that, but a little bit of an idea of dread as an instrument for worldview and stories, I think. Um, and that's, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting transition because part of me also wonders if it comes at a cost, which we may or may not be able to, to look at here. I can't tell, honestly. I'm very interested to hear what you think the cost is. Do you do you want to move directly into the stories, or did you want to preamble, or did you have a focus? Well, I want to go back and forth, but I I do have questions for you, Jeff. <laughs> and the first question is is I think a simple one. Mm-hmm. What do you think John Wagner's issue was with Bill Clinton? <laughs> <laughs> because not only last time we did a talk, we talked about the fact that there's a magazine story uh, about Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Or not really about Bill Clinton, but kind of about Bill Clinton, where Bill Clinton's mind is swapped with a, a criminal from Mega City One. Right. And the sequel to that story is here. Yes. But there's also the Three Amigos, in which the villain is what's his name, Clinton Boxy? Clinton yes, something Box, like that. Mm-hmm. Who is Bill Clinton with a box head? Yes. Yeah. We talked last time about how. Wagner, like this is these stories are happening before the Monica Lewinsky thing broke, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I may be misremembering, but wasn't Clinton generally like reasonably popular in 1995? <laughs> like I don't think he's, he's done anything too outrageous, had he? Well, okay, so this this is actually a, a really good question. I think. Um, And I think there is more than one answer here. The first part, sort of the whatever happened to Bill Clinton, you know, and and its sequel here, to me, runs from a narrative that, for me, I think you have to presuppose. I, I think this was mentioned either in one of the comment threads over at our website, or it might have been something that you had mentioned. But the idea that Wagner is a little closer to conservative than not. Bill Clinton was kind of hugely uh, controversial for the conser- for conservatives. There were the people were really 
not down with Clinton. Now, part of that may be, you know, it's it's kind of hard because now that it's close to 25 years gone by, um, that kind of approach where the Republicans find something absolutely objectionable in every Democratic candidate is is part of the GOP playbook. But sure. there's a lot of Bill Clinton's sort of... Um, like looking at the stories and realizing like, oh, right, this was pre-Monica Lewinsky, which seems crazy. But the whole idea that Bill Clinton was kind of like this wild partier slash, pardon the term, but it's the sort of term that I remember someone like James Elroy using about Clinton, but a notorious pussyhound, you know, that Republicans found really objectionable. There was an idea that Clinton was just kind of a good time party boy grifter and that i think really comes through in the two-part story even though clinton has his um you know ostensibly has had his mind swapped with a criminal from you know dread's time thus necessitating dread having to go back and and swap the brains back we see a lot and i mean a lot of clinton essentially partying nude in the oval office with um you know naked strong woman yeah. party girls yeah and and more or less uh threatening to start nuclear war and i think that there is Again, I think that Wagner, as a dude who, you know, saw himself as sort of an old school social conservative, that really does line up with the way that the conservative party, I think, viewed Clinton at the time. Sure, but but Clinton, like, that's not Clinton. That's whatever the, the, you know, criminal who's been swapped with him. Because Clinton is basically presented as being, yes, an opportunist, Mm -hmm. but also relatively dumb and ineffectual and also bullied by hillary right which again was you know was definitely a, a right-wing talking point at the time yeah it's it's weird to see clinton portrayed as simultaneously you know bringing the world to the brink of war by being hedonistic and mm-hmm. and and uh you know not thinking through consequences and being this like cowed coward Right, this cowed sort of henpecked coward. And I think, you know, I think Wagner was kind of like, oh, here's a way to sort of, a way to explain those two images. Or rather, really just get both of those images into the same story. You know, it's a little bit of the, and who knows, we we talked uh, in previous episodes about the extent to which Lad Mags and uh, other Brit popular humor comics had a little bit of a uh, an encroaching influence on 2000 AD. <laughs> and it may well be that Wagner thought that he was producing something that was very much in that same uh, vein. Like there's, I don't know how to describe it. There's a certain degree of getting to have, have it both ways that feels, I think, very familiar for people who end up watching South Park, you know, just uh, five or ten years after this or whatever it ends up being, you know? Like, mm-hmm. this is this is very much a way for them to, to 
for Wagner to, again, just kind of take the piss. Now, that being said, I do think that the second turn of uh, the screw, as it were, um, which is to say the Three Amigos storyline, suggests something different. I'm not entirely sure, but for example, one of the things that uh, is in there is that Clinton's party where in the story he's in the process of running around and um, turning the cursed earth into the mutant states of America. And he's able to do so in part because he's holding Texas over some kind of barrel. And so consequently uh, dread has to go in and act by essentially going deep undercover in the weirdest buddy movie maneuver of all time and recruiting uh, Judge Death and Mean Machine as um, hit part of his deep cover. I think that the it's possible that depending on how you look at it, there's a case to be made that... Clinton, either if you're looking at it from a Brit side, I feel that, um, as, as you know, uh, Love Actually um, sort of continued a certain strain of the U.S. was encroaching and dictating terms to Britain in a way that Britain felt less like an ally and more like a crony. And yeah. I... I don't know how much of that was actually going on during Clinton's time, but certainly the fact that the Clinton's army wears red pants is feels like a strange revolutionary war reference. But again, I actually can see where uh, part of the thing that a lot of people had noted around the time that Clinton was um, in full effect in 95 was that part of what Clinton had managed to do was reskin the Democratic Party to make it a business-friendly version of itself. In other words, the, the our, our context and complaint for neoliberalism comes very heavily from the, Clinton, the Clintonian reinvention of the Democrats. And what the Democrats did was more or less... Um, have a patina or a genuine commitment to social justice, depending on who you ask, uh, social progressive issues while being super, super business friendly. And in other words, being closer to Republicans on the business side of things. So um, one could argue that Clinton, the Clinton boxy story in which he's recruiting all of these mutants is a weird story about how Clinton as Democrat is retaking the South back from the GOP by more or less stealing their talking points. And again, seeing someplace like Texas having no real choice but to but to go along with it. I, I this one looks where I'm like, I think that might be a stretch, but it's also fascinating. Mm. And the only reason I think it might be a stretch is, is Wagner really that interested or sure. aware of that? Right, right? exactly. Like, is that, is that too much of an American yeah. perspective? For right. That? But, you know, you also can't completely ignore that because, again, like you said, 
Like his party is called the Red Pants. Mm-hmm. Like Clint Boxer. It's it's clearly sorry the Arkansas Red Pants is, is the name. Yes, of Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a story in which Clinton is being parodied. Mm-hmm. Right, you can see that as early as I think it's the first or second page, where you basically see Clinton stump. You see a stump speech. Mm-hmm. You know, and he says, "I'm doing this for your own good. I'm here to set you free." At least I expect is a little appreciation. Like mm-hmm. there's there's something there. Yeah, you know what I mean, like this is not accidental, and mm-hmm. this is not a, a, a broad brush that he is using. Right. Like it feels pointed in a very particular way, and it's interesting to me because you get that and you get the the direct Bill Clinton story, and we haven't seen you know Bush, no, or I don't think we saw Reagan. No, I would be shocked if we did see Reagan. But yeah, yeah, I agree. But we get him going after. I mean, he's going after Clinton, mm-hmm. which is it's just honestly fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Part of me wonders if it's also. You know, there was uh, an idea of you know, well, the audience has grown up with this. They they can, they can deal with more. I don't know if it's more complicated ideas, but but you know, not as subtle ideas, perhaps. Well, you know, yeah, right, right, or maybe just maybe just the same uh, lack of subtlety, but instead of it being you know, uh, uh, a piss up of to steal from an earlier Garth Ennis story of Dennis the Menace, um, you know, that it's, that it's Bill Clinton. The idea that the audience is willing to have a 2000 AD-esque um, broad take on subjects that matter to them. It's just what matters to them is, you know, no longer uh, children's serial and I don't know, you know, uh, cartoon characters it's politics and politics i don't know you know like it 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 is it is odd it is definitely odd and it would be lovely if someone had cornered wagner and and i did not do the research to see and see like is that what's going on but i mean i also feel like clinton it was a dude like reagan was a you know, quote unquote, former movie star, you know, um, who was governor of California, went on and became president. We ran through face cycles of very faceless presidents, you know, uh, uh, if you couldn't parody them. But, you know, but Bill Clinton was on Arsenio Hall playing the saxophone, you know, and I feel like his the idea of president as celebrity was something that they played with a lot. Um, and I think that that really did, uh, did perhaps hard. Yeah. Made him, made him closer to being fair game or, it, it, you know, in, in sort of the, I was going to say sort of in the similar way that um, you could have Diana and Fergie in, in the pages of big Dave, you know, God yeah, help us. yeah, maybe. It, it's just it was it's such a strange thing, but it, one of the most obvious takeaways from Volume Twenty Three is John Wagner had it in for Bill Clinton. <laughs> you know, that's strange. It's the strangest thing that that is one of the clearest messages you can take from this yeah, book. I would but say I so. Really mm-hmm. Think it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I, I should say the Three Amigos as a story, I loved. And one of the reasons I liked it so much is like so many of the 2008 episodes, because Three Amigos is a magazine story. Like so many of the 2008 episodes, it felt like it was classic dread, quote unquote. But yes. not, not in the sense of, we, you know, we talked a couple of episodes ago about dread becoming formulaic. And I think when when there is classic dread here, it's not formulaic, interestingly enough. Yeah. No. You know, I, like it, it does. There are stories here which genuinely feel like they come from, you know, the mid 80s in a good way. And I think that Three Amigos is one of those. I think the Three Amigos is a wonderful mix of the ridiculous, the pointed, and honestly, at the end, the clever. Mm-hmm. It's the silliest, dumbest thing. But I can't tell you how much I appreciate the really epilogue of the fact that Dread tricks the angels mm-hmm. by putting them out the wrong door. Yes. It's a stupid punchline. Mm-hmm. But there's something about it that I was like, this this feels like classic dread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was it like was I alone in that? No, no. Oh, you know the thing that I thought was really funny is one thing that that always helps me uh, in in a way uh, is the fact that the magazine stories are uncredited. Like there's a page of credits partway through the volume. But there's no credit at the beginning of the stories. And so unless you're flipping back and forth a lot to see who wrote what, like, you know, and particularly because this was a section of the stretch of the magazine where it's Wagner, but there's a lot of other people before, before the Three Amigos comes up. Like, I started off by thinking, like, this can't be... Wagner, in part because it's um, the one thing that sort of threw me was it seems like, particularly in the first five or six pages, everything seems so wrong and kind of off model in a way. I was like, okay, so this is, you know, Chris Stanley really fucked this one up, you know, sort of. Um, and then as it went on, I'm like, oh, oh, no, wait, no, 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 no. There's, there's, it's rare for there to be such a strangely, a story that was so heavily centered around fan service in a way. You know what I mean? The idea of like, oh, you're going to have Dread team up with Judge Death and Mean Machine just seems just flatly um, so, again, fanservice-y and cynical and the sort of thing that, you know, you can see someone, either that or someone who is a super slavering fanboy. And so I was like, okay, then there's no way this could be Wagner. But as it goes on, you realize very quickly, like, oh, it it is Wagner, and it is, and you you know it because, like you said, it's classic dread, in that it feels simultaneously very very silly, and yet far more clever than almost it has any right to be. In fact, it it's it is so. Sometimes I feel like the the part of dread that that Wagner brings that can still feel so punk despite him saying that, you know, neither he nor Grant were 
spunks really in any way is very much the degree to which the commitment to the bit is so far beyond what you would expect. And there's there's a little bit, it's called the Three Amigos. Like, it's it's all but a um, spaghetti western, you know, repurposed to star Judge Dredd. You know, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, yeah, it, it, is, it is in no way ashamed of what it is. Exactly. And and that yeah. kind of makes it glorious, to be Exactly, exactly. Like, it, it, it completely owns up to how ridiculous and how over the top and then leans into that. Yes. I mean, there are bits where, again, like you say, it's in theory so off model. Mm-hmm. You know, the judges literally let Judge Death out, give him a body to possess and then give him his costume. Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, but uh, I mean, but that's the thing that I think is super smart is I don't even think they do that until part two of the story. One of the things that's really yeah, great is part one is all set up with this idea of these three characters being badasses. And it's not really until the last page where the, the city is burning, the town is being burnt to the ground. And people are like, well, this has got to be giving you some uh, some real pain dread to watch this happen. And dread's like, whatever it takes to get things done. And... And what's great is then it opens up and it unfolds. But it, to me, it is very in the spirit of Wagner to keep you guessing for the first six or seven pages where you're like, okay, this is a dream. This is an imaginary story. This is this is a story that's being told by a mutant of the cursed earth, you know, that gets all the facts jumbled up. And we're going to find out yeah, about it. Because, you know? because it does keep playing against expectation, right? Exactly. You think, well, maybe that's not really Judge Death. But in the first chapter, Death gets shot to pieces, collapses, and then gets up. Which, again, is the is the comedy that you want from classic Dread. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Where it, it's not just that it's, you know, he didn't just say, fools, you cannot kill what doesn't live. Mm-hmm. He, he, he does get shot to pieces and then gets up and goes, if you're quite finished. Like... Yeah, it's funny. It's playing against expectations, mm-hmm. and as you say, like it doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. you know. And then you get the flashback, but the flashback again is utterly ridiculous. You know, yes. they, they give Death his body, they release Mean Machine, but it works. It all works. It mm-hmm. shouldn't, mm-hmm. but it does, and that's what makes it absolutely glorious. And again, by the end of the story. Dread takes care of those threats again. Yes. You know, he it's not that he just lets them go or or it is like, you know, well maybe they're not such bad guys after all. No, he's like, Okay, you've done your mission, now I'm gonna fuck you up again. And right. there's something about that that again tonally is fascinating because it's it's it shouldn't work, but it does. It's it's tonally against what we've just seen. Which has been a relatively light story. But it does. It's just. It's just. It's just fun. It's. It's really, really fun and unexpected in a way that does feel like the 1980s dread. And I got. I got that from honestly a lot of the stories in this book. Yes. Not just Wagner's. I should say. Mm. I think that some of Stanley's stuff in magazine is pretty good. The the Robbie Morrison story uh, about the the blind girl mm-hmm. is 
at once, you know, terrible and schlocky and sentimental, and yet I loved it. Oh, I did too. I did too. Absolutely. No, and in fact, that was one of the things that I was going to talk about in a way was there are some fun stories, but one of the things that's kind of amazing about, to me, Face of Justice is this idea of like, oh, we're going to be able to figure out ways to tell uh, melancholic stories about dread, you know, or in the dread universe, which is something that most people who are not Wagner, I, I, I think, ever think of doing, you know, like they're either too busy trying to sell the super extreme or uh, dread as badass. Like, you know, the face of judgment is not a perfect story, but it it does have, um, you know, and if you think about it too hard, it falls apart. But that last page completely did what it was supposed to do you know and yeah uh, no exactly it 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 completely works mm -hmm. and again it shouldn't yeah but there's something about in in that story in the moment it does work it it genuinely it feels right but also it feels affecting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you you feel that that it, dread is being kind by by removing his helmet finally admittedly for someone who can't see mm -hmm. but in doing so it is another step in the story that wagner has been trying to tell of dread realizing that his lines are blurring and honestly being okay with that i don't i don't know i don't know i mean i think that um i let's put it this way the one part that that makes it feel like what wagner is like what wagner is doing is I feel like um, that story that we thought was fabulous from a few volumes back where uh, Dread more or less, you know, says to the, I think it's the old guy whose, like, wife is going to Rizik or something. He's like, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do, you know. Bury my knee, it wouldn't hurt. Yes, yes, thank you. And, uh, and, then, and then reverses that. And one of the things that I like about about Face of Judgment is you have something similar where Dread is, you know, she, the the artist who's in the process of going blind is like, I would really like to draw your face underneath the helmet. And he's kind of like, the helmet is the face, you know. And uh, basically he shuts her down. Like, he does it in a variety of processes, which are great. Like, when she's like, I want to draw you, he's like... I'm sure the Justice Department has a lot of reference materials, you know. The fact that he finds it in his heart to show her, um, and it, it, it as kind of a as something close to her dying wish that he takes um uh, has a moment of I don't know mercy or something you know that he's he's able to capitulate in the face of death is was yeah was was really moving but to me to the extent to it's the close to what wagner is doing i would say that it has more to do with the idea that dread is able to occasionally admit that he's wrong um if only to himself and do something different and kind of like you said 
kind of not. Whereas before it was a, he would be super rigid about it. And then, you know, you might see him second guess himself like three years later. And it would be like one caption, right? Yeah, right. It would be that blind girl. She wasn't meaning anything. I'd like, and it would be like a shot of his feet. Like a shot of his boots as he was getting off the bike or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but it, I, I do, I like, I, I think that there is, there is something happening in this volume where not only has Wagner seemed to work out how to write Dread in the way that, that, for want of a better way of putting it, Dread used to be written in the 80s. Mm-hmm. But the others have got at least gotten close to doing it, if not are there yet. Because don't get me wrong, there are still, for example, the other Robbie Morrison story in the book I think is terrible. Uh, Right. Which one is that? That's the... The wall one. Oh, yeah, the wall. You know, I mean... Uh... It's not great. I, part of it is it's, it's just, kind of It just of feels short. like very messy and rushed, and I feel like there's a good idea behind it, but I think the execution yeah. is not there. Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, it seems like it's something that, that was supposed to be two or three parts. Also, I think that it suffers tremendously by Tom Carney's uh, art. Yeah, so yeah. I think... I think, But yeah, no, I mean, everyone's got a moment where they kind of hit or they kind of miss, you know, like... I didn't I didn't really think get me to the church get me to the church on time is kind of one of those feels like a classic Wagner pitch for a story it's just it kind of gets fucked up you know you know like he does I don't yeah, think yeah. I don't think it lands and family feud feels like again a very slight idea for a dread story that then to me ends up working because it's just kind of a big goofy lark that goes bigger with it than you would think. I think one of my favorite stories in this is is Bug Crazy, uh, which is, you know, Wagner being brilliant, but it's, you know, something we haven't seen in a long time, which is, you know, him making fun of sports, uh, which he is always excellent at. So the whole staring contest thing just ended up being, to me, just kind of fabulous. Uh, what struck me in the course of this issue is is that you've got Face of Justice, Family Feud, Get Me to the Church on Time. Like, each of those stories are, quote-unquote, what, what I used to think of as kind of the secret to doing a good Judge Dredd story is don't make it about Dredd. Like, don't have yes. Dredd be the main character. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is how much in this volume... Um, some of Wagner's best stories uh, are ones where Dred's not really the main character, but weirdly Wagner doesn't seem to have much interest in the protagonist. You know what I mean? Um, like, for example, uh, I mean, and admittedly another story that just gets hammered by ex- really, really terrible art. But My Son the Hero feels like a real throwback to classic Wagner, you know, like Wagner in Will Eisner mode, you know, and and it really doesn't work. It really feels like one of the ways in which some of these stories have been 
modernized, I guess, is... I'm not sure. Maybe that Wagner's sense of humor has changed, or maybe he's just aware of things, the need to keep things moving. Like, both the Neon Man and... Like, there's a whole stretch of the 2000 AD stories. Neon Man, Megalot, and Jigsaw that are all very... I mean, it might even continue through to Blister, Blaster Buddy, where it's like classic eight-page Dread stories in which Dread is not necessarily the prime focus. It's like what he, the situation that he is runs across or is in. But weirdly, it feels like the situation is not as focused on character as Wagner would be. You know what I sure, mean? Yeah. Did, do you get that what, sense as well? or Yes and no. I think that's true of the Neon Man and to an extent Megalot. I think I think it's Jigsaw is... I think Jigsaw's just like a disaster, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think Jigsaw's got a lot of flaws that have, have a lot to do with a lot of things. But I'm not sure it's necessarily what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, like Neon Man and Megalot... Megalot, I think, has character. But I think it's one of those stories where the character is Meg City One. I think that the old school. Yes. Again, we're talking about the 1980s dread. There were stories where Meg City One was the character, and you had char- you had characters inside Meg City One basically deliver like two or three lines, right? And I think Megalot definitely does that, and I think it does it well. But the Neon Man, I think you're right. Well, like Megalot is a story where. I just feel that um, it's it's kind of short and to the point. We have seen stuff where Wagner has gone to talk about the craziness of the population. And, and honestly, I think Megalot is a great um, all-too-on-the-money sort of story about about lotteries and people's sort of terrible human nature. You know the fact, well, that... and it should be it should be remembered that like at this point the national lottery in the UK is becoming a thing. Yes, yeah, right. Okay, so, like it's, right. it's it's clearly uh, ripped from the headlights. Yes, exactly. In, in terms of what's happening in the UK, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but I just also feel that, for example, the family that wins the the lottery is just a they're kind of nothing. You know what I mean? There there's no. Any, 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 yeah, context for them or whatever, any feeling that you have for them is rendered entirely through Escara's cartooning, you know. But is that not, I I feel that's, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, forgivable in Megalot? Oh, yeah. The Neon Man is not. And in part, the Neon, you know, the Neon Man again is Escara art, but the Neon Man feels, this is the strangest thing to say, the Neon Man feels as if it would have worked if it had been less garish. Mm. Mm-hmm. I feel there's something, especially about the fact that, you know, this is a scare as he's really getting into computer art for the first time. Mm-hmm. He's making choices mm-hmm. about this that I think sap the sap his art of the dynamism that it has had in black and white. And honestly, when he's doing watercolors as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the Neon Man really suffers from that very badly. And so the Neon Man feels like it has no urgency but the scripting the story feels like if a different artist had done it or if Iscari himself had done it in a different way it would work better because it would be more plot heavy for one of them and action heavy right well and I, I think 
so for me, I guess that's the that's a little bit of the it's a little bit of what I feel is is that the stories themselves are constructed well enough to be interesting and to be told well and to move, but there just doesn't seem to be quite the same emphasis on characters. Even if it's just character in a, you know, the story of Schmoogie Boggins, you know, like... I mean, I I I actually think a good example of this is Blaster Buddy. mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which... I, I think really does fall victim to the thing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Blaster Buddy at a different time would have focused as much as anything on the person who has the talking gun. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or for and example, I, I, Caught Short, which is very similar to me is Caught Short is a kind of a classic dread premise. Like a guy who badly needs to pee, who essentially can't get a break and then dread gets in his way and makes his life worse. Um, and the story totally works for that, but that character and perhaps, you know, I, I, for everyone who's ever had to, you know, take a piss in public and trying desperately to find a facility, maybe you don't need to have an extra layer of characterization to sympathize or empathize with that person. But I was kind of, I was, it seemed notable to me how much that person was nobody slash everybody. And I feel that that was the case in the case of the neon man in a way, like part of the, like the mystery of what's happening, like all the characters surrounding it are non entities in a way that dread is, that 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 I think is a departure. We talk about classic dread, you know, and some of this stuff feeling like classic dread, and and I think you're right, and it's right. But I'm I I wonder the extent to which that means that Mega City One is moving way more into or moving back to a kind of facelessness of the populace as opposed to a sort of uh, Wagner's emphasis or interest in character or characterization or character plight, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's it's strange because if you look at Neon Man, there's not even really a character there. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's a special effect more, more than anything. Again, I, I think part of my problem with it is the special effect is so underwhelming oh, because definitely. of the way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because of the way that Iscariot draws it. Right. And there is I can imagine this being something that if it had Iscariot chosen to draw it differently, that there would be something more there. Mm. You know? But the, the Neon Man also feels like it's a uh setup for a story. Yes. It never happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he has a cyanic amplifier and and Dread even says at the end, you've got to wonder what Spall would do, mm. was doing with the device in the first place. Better look into it. That is not picked up anywhere else in this book, at least. Yeah. And maybe maybe it's going to be later down the line. But that also helps it feel weightless or, or disappointing or, or, or something along those lines, I think. Yes, I agree. But, you know, the weird thing is, and, and I agree, is 
The thing that struck me here is Wagner and maybe to an extent the other people working on Dread by this particular point have managed to hit a degree of professionalism that even though when you're looking at things that look like failures, and I would say things like the Neon Man is a really good example of one, um, it still doesn't feel as uh, empty as the Alan Grant version of it from three years earlier would have. Sure. Yeah. You know? It doesn't, doesn't. The Jigsaw one, again, feels feels that empty for me. Agreed, yeah. You know, Cod Short does kind of as well. Mm-hmm. Cod Short could be, an, could be an Alan Grant thing, right down to the terrible pun name of the guy in Cod Short. Yeah, that's true. Who's, is he not called, like, Spend a Penny or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, really? <laughs> is is that how little you care about this? Um, but but I mean, you're 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 right. For the most part, even disappointing Wagner is still better than Grant trying his hardest. I guess. Well, I mean, how do I put it? I I think I think it could be said, and you know, of course, you had thoughts about being subjected to Grant trying his hardest in in. the judge anderson sci-files but for myself like i kind of felt like what i saw was a lot of grant just kind of showing up and and kind of picking up a check um wagner what i think to me is interesting is for his stuff on dread there is a I feel like he has streamlined himself in in a weird way. Like, I I, I don't know. I know it's something that I think I, I've maybe talked about uh, on Wait What. I don't can't imagine that it's ever come up here on Drock. But, you know, I feel like cartoonists are comic book uh, artists are interesting characters in that their style changes as they age. And in a way they end up changing their style in a way that the people sometimes it's in a way that makes everyone appreciate them more but it's not uncommon for people who have early fans for people to like that work quote unquote less you know and i think part of that is that as a cartoonist goes on in their career they are trying to capture something essential like they're trying to like how what's the fewest number of lines that i can draw to really capture something and of course for many fans they're like but i i loved all those extra lines you know why did you switch to you know feather brushing when you were using like a heavy you know inkers line and all of which is to say, I sometimes feel like what we're seeing here in Wagner is a, is how Wagner has changed over the years, which is his stuff is is pretty pared down. And in a way that even when it doesn't work, hits a level of, well, I'm, 
I'm still turning the pages. You know what I mean? But it's, it's weird if you see quote unquote, the heights in this volume as, as things like three amigos where it feels like classic dread or even something for me, uh, uh, to Tharg with love, for example, which I liked a lot or the bug crazy or whatever it's called. Um, all of those stories feel like classic dread in a way in that they've got the cleverness, but they also feel a lot leaner in a weird way. And no, I, I th- yeah, I, th- I think that's actually a really good, uh, good thing to say, especially for example, I would say something like statue of judgment. Yes. Yeah. Feels very, does feel very classic dread, but you're right. It does feel leaner. Yeah. It does feel that it, it's, he's, he's become some sort of Ur Wagner along the way. That's yeah. you are not double O R. I'm not turning <laughs> this into a Nurbali thing. Um, but I, I, I should say before, cause I feel we, you know, we've been talking a lot about Wagner and we should talk about other things. Uh, classic Wagner also means that you have a racist to shit story in here as well. Language barrier is shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, language barrier, the language barrier saw print in 1995 yeah. is kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Did it, we not know better by then for real? Like, honestly? I, I, no. I mean, the, the thing that is really sad about racism is um, it is so shockingly uh, of the past that when you see it in the past, you're always like, oh, God, what the hell? Like, you know, because it seems anachronistic. It's like when you're watching a movie and, that's set in the 70s and somebody, you know, is is riding a horse and buggy in the background. You're like, what? what is that? That's not right. But the, the sad fact of the matter is, is that, you know, even now, like, you know, there's there's racist things from two years ago that everyone let slide that in five to eight years from now, someone will be looking at being like, how the fuck did that happen? You know, which is, I mean, that's like the ongoing question of racism. That being said, I do feel like the closest thing that happened with um, that story is, is that it's so, uh, what was it? Is that language barrier is, it keeps such a huge distance from the, unless I'm misunderstanding the story, which I could very well be, that the story has a lot of uh, emphasis on the machine being the thing that gives the comically different, um, garbled language rather no, the, than having them read out of a, a booklet yes. or something. Yeah, what's interesting about Language Barrier is the text is not necessarily the, the racist part. The imagery is. Yes, and the imagery is the problem that, of course, is super problematic. Um, but again, I mean, you know, Fucking hell, like I was just re-watching something like Lost in Translation, which has re- is on the one hand absolutely great, and on the other hand just 
having hugely cringely, cringingly racist moments to it. So what did you think, sorry, to change things, unless you really do want to um, talk a little bit about how embarrassing language barrier is, which... No, I don't. I mean, I, I, I just kind of want to say that you know, one of the things that does make this feel like, oh, it's classic 2080 is the, is the racist you know, Wagner. Where you're story. like, and here's, yeah, and here's the terrible racist bit. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, it's absolutely that, true. That's, yeah. I will yeah. happily move on from there. Well, uh, what did you think of Goodnight Kiss? The uh, very long Garth Ennis uh, part from uh, opener to this volume. Uh, that sure is a very long story that does nothing. <laughs> okay, bear with me. A, I kind of liked it. I think it's the closest thing to an Ennis Dread story that I liked, in part because he is sort of moving it in, like it's sort of Ennis has discovered his love of Westerns, and therefore, they sort of supersede his love of dread, or or at least counterpunch it. I think it's fascinating that Goodnight Kiss and Three Amigos is in the same volume because they feel like they're not the same story, but they're sort of the same story. You know what I mean? It's a cursed earth, earth western starring Judge Dread, and what you get as a result. Um, from those two stories is incredibly different. Like the, you know, Goodnight Kiss is a Judge Dread Western written by Garth Ennis that's like a Sergio Corbucci spaghetti Western that has lots of torture and death and people being killed and then sneering bad guys having their heads blown off by, you know, heroes that really represent nothing but the the coldness and the totality of death and then three amigos feels like something from you know uh sergio leone's post good the bad and the ugly spaghetti western era where it's like owes almost as much if not more to classic comedies as it does to you know westerns and yet at the same time also has bad guys and double crosses and you know villains and 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 I don't know. Anyway, I just thought that it was fascinating that they were in the same volume that the one time that Ennis all but seems like he's finally moving out from underneath Wagner's shadow Wagner comes and then totally overshadows him by doing the same type of story, <laughs> but in a way that is much more rampantly entertaining. So I was going to say, I don't think that Wagner's doing the same story because Wagner it makes a story worth reading. Like there, there's something <laughs> about, I, and it might be that Goodnight Kiss is extraordinarily long. It's it's nine chapters of which it feels like there's maybe four chapters worth of story. Right. But it, it just, it feels, and also it ends with the, the ridiculous fight, which is far too long and, and just feels like Ennis is, is, you know, lost himself to, to his own, you know, macho fantasies. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I, I, maybe, maybe they are the same story and the, the, the sour taste of so much 
has has washed it out of my head. But well, they're like they're yeah, history. they're not the same story because they're very different. If nothing else, they're very different westerns. You know what I mean? Like it's, but they're both they're both Judge Dread westerns. They're both quote unquote Judge Dread spaghetti westerns sure, in a way. Sure. Yeah. It's just they are very different because yeah, the 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 Goodnight Kiss is about is all about vengeance, vengeance in a completely abstract meaningless level of masculine signifier you know and three amigos is very much about you know is is kind of like a fan service lark it's kind of uh that turns into you know a weird buddy slash anti-buddy western romp that you could get from things like spaghetti western so well and i mean you know judge dread has in in three amigos there is a situation very early where going deep undercover means that he has to stand by and see innocents suffer you know and it's it's a it's enough to where you know his companions who know what's really going on judge death is like hey this has got to be pretty tough for you you know but it's never really it's never really dwelt on you know what i mean like it's not the at at the core of it (laughs) ennis is and this may be true of of ennis anyway is ennis's the goodnight kiss is you know, again, about masculine behavior slash portrayal slash fetishization with a with like just enough of a dash of critique to make it acceptable. Um, and with Wagner, it's completely different. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't what Dread is a character in the story. um and he's a really enjoyable character. Like he outsmarts the bad guys. But like, you know, there's that sequence, that really genius sequence in Three Amigos where Dread has to get someone else to turn the nuclear to turn the keys in the nuclear key sequence and everyone around him keeps like kind of dying or getting knocked out and he's just getting more and more frustrated. Was just I mean that was really a just a fabulous sequence, you know? So, you know, again, Ennis being overshadowed by Wagner, the thing that's interesting to me and kind of a a lesson is, as you know, I'm sort of a, a fellow who, well, so like Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I love The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's a great film. It's not really a film, though, that says, speaks to me. You know what I mean? It's a story, it's a movie that I love because it's it's a genuinely delightful spaghetti western. And this is one of those things that I was going to mention, which is that, that you know, whereas the things that I love sort of like John Woo movies or things that, uh, you know, have like, you know, fall into the more noir standards of, of saying things about, you know, the human condition that are grim and gritty. Um, that's more my jam, but there is something to be said for people who are able to do what they do exceptionally well, as opposed to the people who knew not, which, 
which is why I sort of think it might be a good time to talk about Pat Mills' uh, return to um, writing Judge Dredd with uh, with uh, Judge Dredd flashback 2099, The Return of Rico. Um, did you have any thoughts about it, Graham? Because for me, one of the things that I think is really funny about it is, is you know, talking about how little some of these stories by Wagner really mean like you know they're 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 pared down they're readable but i do find that thing of like yeah where are where's the quote-unquote people or the quote-unquote human interest you know um wagner is if nothing else able to turn that on and off like i don't think that he necessarily feels that that is a necessity of what makes a good story or what can make an an interesting story and i think one of the things that really helps make the case for that argument is judge Dredd, the return of rico by pat mills with art by paul johnson tries so hard to be a story about something that it just somehow manages to reinforce how much it's really about nothing, I guess. You know what I mean? It's it's such a strange, strange thing. Mm-hmm. You know the, the basic backstory of why the story exists, right? I'm assuming because of the Judge Dredd film that they yes. thought, yeah. Which is ostensibly, like, ties in with the Rico storyline. Mm-hmm. And also, so this starts, uh, they're... The flashback 2099 story starts in Prague 950. And 950 is also the first issue. A, it's a tie-in issue with the movie. But also it's the first issue where 2000 he had extra pages. That's right. So it's an additional story in there. Mm-hmm. The Pat Mill story is not the only Judge Dredd story in these stories. Mm-hmm. Wagner's still writing the main Judge Dredd story at the same time that this flashback story is appearing. Mm-hmm. And Mills is, you know transforming what was what a five page four page story into something that's 15 pages or so yeah and trying to give rico a personality in the in the the process and it it's horrible it's really bad it's really bad i would say i really like the art Hmm. am i alone in that based on your like (laughs) silence slash sigh you know i think i ran hot and cold on the art like there's parts that i actually like in the art a lot uh i will say that i actually on the one hand like the i think the the coloring is great um i think the storytelling itself has moments of crapitude to it to me <laughs> i think that's fair I, I what i like very much about paul johnson's art is I think he manages to make things look three-dimensional, which mm-hmm. is a very strange thing. Mm-hmm. But I, there's a blockiness about it that I really, really appreciate. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it, I believe that these things exist in a physical space. And they're stylized enough that it works for me, to be honest. Yeah. But you're right. Storytelling is, is not the best. Yeah, the storytelling is, is kind of not the best. It has a lot of... I think one way that it sort of may or may not suffer and it it could be what the artist is dealing with in the story is there's such a huge emphasis on super tight close-ups like 
there's no sense there's barely a sense of place for anything like if you look at you know Rico's got a whole page where he is on Titan in theory being experimented on and labored in space and you see like none of that you know like it very much reminds me of very well done painted art from the 90s which is to say you've you've got a couple of good models that are willing to wear a dread dread helmet and shove a vacuum cleaner hose in front of their face and so you get lots of really awesome dynamic shots of them from all kinds of great crazy angles um and then everything else looks like it's taking place in a closet you know so i mean one of the problems is you know to talk about a sense of space when you do get backgrounds they're very very abstracted yeah which i again I like and that I think it's atmospheric, but if you're looking to actually, this this sounds terrible. I was like, I like it because it's, it's very abstracted. But if you're looking to have some sense of where the characters actually are standing, yes, given point in the story, it's not the clearest. I do understand. <laughs> so so that was hard. Honestly, I do think God help me. The I I never have any the. The whole gimmick that the judges go to Titan and they have to have that breathing apparatus stuck in their face, they always just look stupid to me. And so that's the other thing. I think I think that I think that Johnson, by giving a lot of uh this weird sort of sewn together facial scarring on his mouth as a kind of rictus, um worked well for giving Rico a little bit of extra panache and and throwing some extra nodules on his head but you know I'm always like "Ah." you know dread being threatened by a robot pig just never really gets me gets my blood boiling you know I think it's hilarious that you and I when we read the first Pat Mills Rico story um, of course, the thing that we both just shook our heads like vigorously about was the ridiculously dramatically overwrought um, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. And I love that it I, I the love that Yes, it's like the one thing that they throw back in. I'm like, yeah, boy, you just gotta like that had to happen, huh? You know, and it's just it's uh but the thing that I think is, is sad in many ways about it is Mills, who, you know, brought a lot of zip and pep to the Cursed Earth um, storyline for Dread. Uh, and, you know, as editor, co-creator, has a lot of things to say about who Dread is and how Dread works. Um it's weird to me how much he tends to fumble the ball when he gets a hold of the characters. Like this story has Rico running around talking about saying things like, you know, the better you, the better you were like the better I had to be kind of thing. Like he's, he's trying so hard to make Rico the Joker to judge dreads Batman. Like, 
And it's kind of a shame that, I mean, that it so dramatically doesn't work. But also, I think, in ways that that I feel sort of sad about, you know, Mills had gone a long, long, long way on eschewing and mocking uh, superheroes. And yet, you know, this isn't the first time that you see him sort of try and bring to dread a certain amount of like, well, this is going to be gangbusters because this is how Marvel Comics would do it. And just really falling on his face in a way that I think is kind of strange and embarrassing, you know? It's it's so... the. the you know the comparison with the Joker, I think, is is not incorrect, mm-hmm. but also it's so strange given that you know it is a flashback, but also we know Rico's going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, they build he builds Rico up in such a way that feels pointless in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. because he, the reader knows he's going to die. Well, you I know? mean, and also. He's not doing anything interesting in building Rico up. Well, but see, I mean, he, yeah, exactly. The, the situation, the better I liked it because it helped me stop. It helped stop me thinking, feeling anything to block out the pain. Yours and mine. Mm-hmm. Oh God! <laughs> right? No, exactly. Right? Like, there's just such a strong emphasis for meaning. Honestly, the thing that I think is potentially is halfway to being interesting is the fact that Mills's distrust of authority he has a few balloons where Rico talks about that and I think there's something there in that like the idea that Rico is someone who who saw through the system and doesn't believe in it is something that could have been really interesting and it could have been something that mills could have really hung his hat on because mills is someone who does not believe in authority and does not believe in the system but the weird part is rather than go down that route like he just goes an entirely different way also it's inherently dramatic, undramatic. Like there's like Mills is like the drama of like, oh, I'm going to have, you know, Rico hold dread at gunpoint in an apartment that's where he's going to freeze to death in 20 minutes. I'm just like, yeah, that's that's a fast boil of a story. You know what I mean? Like there was just. But, but even inside that, the, the, the story takes, you know three pages to have the showdown at the end Mm -hmm. and even with that it feels like it comes out of nowhere yes yeah no there's just so much in it that's kind of weirdly poorly set up like i know that he wants the the drama of it you know and in the first couple of pages if you've never if you're not being exposed to the rico story in theory it's you know like oh page one a mysterious stranger page two he's calling himself judge dread like page three and he's going to kill judge dread it's like there's two judge dreads why you know and yet um you know the, the oh god just so bad so bad. Uh, it's, 
But it's yeah. it's it's funny to me that we get this at the same time on the same book that we get the Ennis return. Yeah. Right. Right. Because both feel like they are misunderstandings of what the appeal of dread is, or misapplications of dread, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Like I think all we needed beyond this was like another Morrison story <laughs> in the same yes. book, right. and you'd have multiple people who are, you know, in their own right, great writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Being like, you know, dread's great because dread is either like a thug or a hero or the thug hero. Right, right. And Wagner's here being like, you know, dread's complex but also a dick. And right. the most interesting thing is the city. Right. Yeah, right. You know, the city or there's a really long, slow burn to Dread where, I mean, I think Wagner in a way at this point can decide how much of Dread he can make make the story be about Dread. You know what I mean? Like he can he can turn that on, he can turn that off, but generally for the most part... Yeah, you're right. He makes it about the city or he makes it about the thrust of the story and dread is an element is sort of a mechanism in the story where sometimes what he does is surprising and sometimes what he does isn't. What I think is fascinating about Mills and Ennis to an extent is is that their takes on the character are weirdly and and this is true of Morrison like it's always more you know what I mean like it's always like that they're as far as they're concerned the trick to doing a dread story is that he's gotta be the baddest you know and it's weird how much Wagner does not have to worry about that you know, well, you get the feeling that Wagner doesn't even necessarily care about that. Yeah, exactly. Right? Wagner has other characters point out that like Dread is respected and Dread is like really tough, mm-hmm. and other people think that Dread is the scariest. Mm-hmm. But Wagner never actually spends time showing Dread to be the worst. Right. Right. Yeah. He'll have other people mention it, but he'll never center a story around. Do you know how hard Dread is? He's the hardest motherfucker on the planet. Right. And I feel that that's core to the stories that especially Morrison, but Ennis as well. And honestly, this this male story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are. They're like, but look how tough he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and with with Wagner, there's there's just a variety of other things. Like every once in a while, Wagner will dip into it. I mean, I think we talked about that weird reference that Castillo makes in uh, Hysteria or Hysteria or whatever the Hesperia, whatever the damn planet story is from like two volumes back, oh, where she's uh, like Wilderlands. Yeah, Wilderlands. Yeah, I was thinking of the name of the planet where she's like, "Ooh, he's got such a gravelly voice. It's sexy or whatever." You know, I was like, "Ugh, no, don't go there." You know, like it's very rare for Wagner to have to do that. Like you said, it, it it's so much more frequent that that the that the other cops are put up with dread or tolerate dread or or kind of loathe dread, you know, but but dread himself, like I, I guess there's just that thing of like there's not um 
Wagner just doesn't have to do that performative thing anymore. Maybe part of it is is because to whatever extent it was done, it was, you know, a million volumes ago for him. But also I think it's just not a uh, it it really does nail how much of it's not that people miss the appeal because it's clear that that is I mean maybe Mills and Morrison do but Ennis is clearly a huge fan of dread and so what he misunderstood what happens <laughs> yeah well but, uh, because I think it's it's that um you know, again, it's just sometimes it's just a matter of degree. Like, there, Wagner, for lack of a better term, he doesn't he doesn't have to try too hard. You know, he's able to pull off cool dread moments that have nothing to do really with with dread being super macho. Like you said, one of the best parts of Three Amigos is is how he's made a promise to the Angel family and how he both keeps that promise and 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 cheats them, you know? And it in a way it's such a it's a perfect little dread moment, you know? Um because he gets the upper hand, but the way that he gets the upper hand has nothing to do with like you know, oh, we took turns punching each other and I'm the one who still has my face on, you know. Um, although... No, it's a, cause, but, but again, like, Wagner has dreads, quote-unquote, win at the end of Three Amigos, mm-hmm. right? But A, he doesn't do it solo. Mm-hmm. And B, he takes no pleasure in winning. And by he, I don't just mean dread, I mean Wagner. Mm-hmm. Like... Dread does it in Wagner stories because it's what he does. Mm-hmm. Like it's never bravado or proving himself or anything. He's fulfilling the role that he has been put in, mm-hmm. which is to uphold the law. Right. And if it's entertaining and done in unique ways or in ways that are amusing to us, all the better. Right. But. Right. Dread just sees it as doing his job, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel that it, you know in in the Goodnight Kiss story and in Return Rico as well, for that matter, mm-hmm. it's done with much more like this means something to Dread. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like about Wagner and also Robbie Morrison, also Chris Stradley, mm-hmm. you know, the other new generation, Gordon Rennie, the other new generation of writers coming up in this book is Dread is at his best when he is doing Dread stuff. Yeah, but doesn't think it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. When Dread feels like he's having a big adventure, mm-hmm. something's gone wrong. I think there, I think there's something to that. I think that's actually an excellent point, which is in a way hard because there's a certain degree of how do you get the story to quote unquote mean anything, you know? And I do think that that is part of Mills's charm and also, you know, the part that continually trips him up with dread. And with Ennis, um, it's just it's unfortunately way more complicated, you know. Um and similarly, I think it's why Morrison and Miller are like, Oh yeah, okay, so you just mean nihilistic hijinks and it's like no. 
weirdly, that is not the case of what's in there. You know, um, one th- okay. I based yeah. on you saying that, I, I've I've something I've been wondering about for a while, and I want to see what you think. Mm-hmm. The setup of Dread is nihilistic, but Dread the Strip is not. By which I mean the Mega City One structure, the idea that there is a fascistic police force that is, no pun intended, judge, jury, and executioner. I mean, honestly, we we've, we've talked about this before. Imagine being a citizen of Mega City One. It's horrendous. Yeah. But the Dread Strip does not feel nihilistic to me. Well, so, hmm, that is a that's a really good question because, you know, weirdly, you've got Wagner being really nihilistic here. I think in this volume, in ways in which, uh, that are kind of a return to some of his earlier stuff. Like Megalot not only has the very cynical take on somebody wins a super big uh, prize and then literally has to be protected by being killed by his neighbors. But in the end, Dredd turns around and says like, why don't we just win that money? And we could use the funding ourselves. And Volt's like, great idea, Dredd. You know, like to thing with love is one of the things that I love about that story that really works for me is you've got two mutants on the run who for the mutant liberation force front who end up inside the apartment of a couple that um, uh, basically have changed their name to Happy and Merry Christmas and celebrate Christmas every day. And one of the brutally wounded mutants more or less learns the meaning of Christmas on his deathbed, you know? And then what happens is Dredd turns around and books them for buying, um, you know, bootleg items because it's the only way that they can afford to give each other gifts every day of the year, you know? Um, So there's, there's actually a lot in there that is... Cynical? Uh, I think, to me, the thing, and I could be wrong about this, but I think that one thing that Wagner may not be, or is not nearly as often as Mills or Morrison, and certainly Mark Miller, is I don't think I don't think that Wagner is cynical about entertainment, you know? Like, I think his idea of telling an entertaining story is it's is not something to be taken for granted. It is an achievement, and it's and it's an achievement worth doing and doing well. You know what I mean? I think that's <laughs> one of the things that is um, goes all the way back to when Wagner and Grant, like sort of their shared vision for Dread, had so much on the idea of like, it doesn't matter if it's silly. It doesn't matter if it's serious. It doesn't matter if it switches from one to the other. If it's entertaining, that's, that is enough. And so I think for me, Wagner is the reason why Dread does not feel cynical is is that Wagner himself does not 
is not cynical about that. So sometimes there are stories that are that that are nihilistic, and sometimes there are stories that are hopeful, and sometimes there are stories that are just silly in a way that doesn't take the main character seriously. But but Wagner takes the the telling of those stories very seriously. And that, and that I think is something that sort of value is something that it looks like maybe we're finally starting to see, um, in, in other writers, in other writers. Exactly. You know, I, I, I think you're right. I, I do genuinely think there's something, I don't know if it's something more, but something else there. Mm-hmm. I do think that, Wagner is not a nihilistic storyteller mm-hmm. and the stories he tells inside Dread's Worlds while I mean in, um, astonishingly dark mm-hmm. in terms of the humor sometimes right. and I think the, the thing with love is very dark I don't think it's nihilistic mm-hmm. I think there is something there some I don't know sense of fun or some sense of kindness or some sense of empathy that is not there in a Morrison Dread story. Is not, which again is kind of amazing when you think of Morrison's other work. Yes. Or is not there in a Mills Dread story. Is not. Right. Is honestly, it's not there in an Ennis Dread story. But in a weird way, I think Ennis wants it to be there. He just can't get it there. Yes, exactly. Right. right. But I, I think there's something more than. I don't think it's only nihilism. I don't think nihilism is 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 really fully there in a Wagner story. And again, that's one of the reasons I like the Morrison story. You know, the Robbie Morrison story, I should say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Face of Justice, uh, elsewhere, or or for that matter, the the Chris Stradley one with McMahon artwork mm-hmm. at the very end of the book as well. There is some more humanity or some other kindness mm-hmm. that that I really appreciate. Uh, you know, I I whereas for me, I think that say the difference between say Wagner and Ennis, for example, is that you know. Like, and I've gone through periods where I do think Wagner is interested in people, but I think even it, what I thought was interesting was in this volume being like, that doesn't really feel like the case, but it's also somehow not a problem and what's going on with that. I do think that, for example, Wagner is never going to to be nihilistic with the characters that you are invested in or with you know what i mean like i think and i could be wrong because i haven't read the next volume i don't think that for example you have to worry about castillo suddenly you know being impregnated by some sort of spider monster and like bursting forward from within with like you know an alien-esque creature coming out of there you're not going to have Hershey suddenly turn into some sort of weird leggy femme fatale who wants to get her hooks into dread and, you know, as a way of achieving power, you know, like all of those things are things that, that, that imagery is absolutely 100% stuff that Wagner is more than happy to indulge in if he thinks that it can be an interesting or an entertaining story. But Going back to the split between Wagner and Grant at the end of Oz, I think there was something where he just felt that there was something about the investment, maybe not even the character, 
but the audience investment in Chopper that would be betrayed by just having him be gunned down, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so, and so I, for me, what I think is, is I see your point. I think for me, it's very, I'm starting to wonder that it's very much the difference that Wagner, like a lot of the other um, comic greats to me, like, you know, a classic example, like uh, Chris Claremont for, you know, the X-Men. It can be really hard. Everyone loves Chris Claremont's X-Men, but hardly anyone can really do it well because they are either being too faithful to it or they are trying to cynically mimic it you know mm -hmm. and 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 somehow both of those things fail because there is entirely a lack of cynicism that precisely allows it to move into that realm that just feels differently and reads differently and hits differently and 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 ends up playing out in terms of the choices that that the that the writer goes on to make about the characters or dread or the direction of the stories. So to me, you can read incredibly dark, depressing stories that Wagner's writing, and yet there is something that is not altogether that is not dark about it because there isn't the nihilism of the well, you know, I needed the check or I wanted to put this on my resume or, you know, I was trying to give a good laugh to the editor on the desk. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So that, that's my thing. I feel, I feel Wagner is not cynical about his audience and about what he's giving to them. And I, that to me, but again, I'm just sort of restating my point. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see, see whether future volumes play it out. But that's the closest that I can come to the appeal of this volume. Because I liked complete, I liked volume 23 a lot. But before we started talking, I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to say. Because I was like, it's all, you know, a lot of it was pretty good. And some of it were misses. None of it felt great. You know what I mean? Like, it was never like, oh, this is the one volume that if I had to push into somebody's hands to read Judge Dredd, you know what I mean? Like, it's not in there, but it's absolutely a Drock volume for me, you know? No, that's, that's just it. I, I was literally about to ask if it was Drock or Dross, and I'm glad you, you got there first. Yes. It's this weird thing where this is in no way Dredd at its best. This, yes. There are a lot of misses there are a lot of things that it's doing maybe not wrong but not particularly well the Ennistrip and the mills material i think are both kind of shit but there's something about this volume that is oddly comforting there's something about this volume that i really appreciated and felt like i said before like dread in a way that we haven't felt stuff like dread for a while yeah i know? see i see that and i feel the same although the weird part is it also feels like it's changed it also feels like it's classic dread in that it is dread that suits its times it's not dread that is shackled to dread whatever that is 
you know, so I don't know. Yeah, I agree. It's it's weird. And for what it's worth, I should say, although the Mills thing was sort of a, a bummer for me, kind of a disappointment, I um, I kind of liked Goodnight Kiss. It pales in comparison to just about anything else, but it's probably my favorite Garth Ennis Dread story, which says nearly nothing, but still, I feel, has to be said. I mean, that's really not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it really is? Like, there's no there's no Ennis that, that you, you prefer? I mean, I can't really think of anything. Like, all of his other stuff. So, part of what I like about Goodnight Kiss, and it may well be part of it, is Nick Percival's work, but is on top of the fact that it is a, you know, pared down sort of Sergio Cabucci revenge spaghetti Western is that it just kind of looks cool. Like I, the marshals of the, yeah, visually looks cool. Like I sort of like the fact that, you know, the, the, the stupid marshals of the cursed earth look like um you know look like the the ring rates from like a bullshit uh tolkien like if simon bisley had been commissioned to draw lord of the rings covers you know what i mean like i love that you that dread gets crucified like you know it's all that stuff that's just cheese like goodnight kiss is a big old grilled cheese uh sandwich of a dread comic and it's I, so so I like it in the way of like a sort of uh, like oh this is kind of a fun a uh, couple of issues of heavy metal you know like all you need are like a couple of of you know topless women from Saturn like posing around dread but you know it's not good but I mean, between that and like dread killing everyone and everything, and like you even get that little chapter where like uh, the one kid ends up reading from the Book of Revelations while like dread more or less like kills Johnny Kisses like loathsome compatriot or whatever. Like you get that, you get exploding motorcycles, you get ring rates, like you, you get everything. I I, I feel yeah. like this is you being like. I like it because it's weirdly heavy metal, and that's honestly one of the reasons why I hate it. So I get it. I totally get it. You know, I mean, part of me really like, wishes there's a muscular version of the Spectre beating up Judge Dredd. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of wish that that Dredd wasn't wearing an American flag diaper. Like, I kind of think that that's just like a little too much. But yeah, I mean, it's it's fine. Like, it's kind of like it's all it's all big you know, heavy metal chords. And I kind, and I do, I, it, in that sense, I like it. It's just, it's just better than a lot of Ennis's other stuff because it honestly is way more absurd and it's closer, it's closer to Ennis than it is to Wagner, if you know what I mean. Like, and so the fact yeah, that Ennis it, yeah, is, it is much, it is much more over the top. Yeah, and and I think and I think that's good. So part of me is like, it's not great. It is terrible. It's not awesome. But at least there's a way in which you know. Part of me is like, ah, you know, good for Ennis. Like he finally, 
started to figure out something that might work for him with Dread in a way that just didn't feel like he had to completely misunderstand John Wagner to get there. I mean, he still does misunderstand John Wagner, but at least there's kind of more of a conscious, I don't know. In any event, I it worked for me, Graham. It worked for me. I wanted to point it out because I knew it didn't work for you. I won't say it worked well. Don't get me wrong. It's not going to be the my my favorite it, story it, out of the collection, but, oh, you know. Okay, what is your favorite story in the collection? Uh, I think my favorite story in the collection, as I think I mentioned, is uh, Bug Crazy, which we didn't really talk about, but is... Um, you know, I think I've told you, I love Wag- Wagner and Grant it seemed like once a year they would do a, a, a silly sports story. You know, that was very much like one of the dread genre tr- things. <laughs> and Bug Crazy is the first one in a long time where it is a, a staring contest championship and listening to the vituperative um, dialogue of the, of the sportscaster you know, talking about the uh, the excitement happening in the stadium tonight um, was really fun and goofy. And of course, it what ends up happening is is that Dred's there to do a sting um, of having people, you know, rounding up various uh, people who have outstanding warrants by ostensibly having them win big prizes and then march backstage and get arrested. At the same time, Judge Giant is running a, a, an attempt to pick up a um, there's a there's a transaction of a horrible, deadly virus that is being um, sold to the highest bidder that's happening there. So it's just it's a it's just a it's just a goofy story, and then that really gruesome ending. I just ended up enjoying it. It was that was that was my fave. That was the one that felt like quote unquote classic dread to me that um there was just something where the sports cat particularly the the un what seems to me a really fabulously great voice um Wagner has when it comes to capturing sports newscaster hyperbole I really enjoyed how about you? Oh, it's the three amigos for me completely, yeah. Three uh, Amigos is pretty about great. About mm-hmm. that, that just 100% works for me. But also, it's not just the writing. I think Hairstein's art, Trevor Hairstein's art for that is great. Mm-hmm. I really, really like Trevor Hairstein's art in that. In particular, there are multiple shots where it looks like he's really been studying like really old Mick McMahon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I, I just, I just love. There, there's ways that he does uh, the, the eagle on Tread Shoulder. In particular, which is such a strange thing to focus on, uh-huh. that it seems weirdly raggedy, and it reminds me of the cursed earth. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, I just, his art on that I think is great. I think he does a great Mean Machine. His Judge Death is pretty good, but his Mean Machine I think is just a joy. Yeah, I think, I think so too. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's really, really, it's a fun story. And honestly, I appreciated the fun. Yeah, you know, even, even shitty things like you know it's called blow out or blow up Mm -hmm. is such a sort of you know dumb joke but i really appreciated that i really really 
enjoyed that and felt, oh yeah, this this feels right. That was what sold this book for me. That there's a sense of fun on so many of the stories. I've mentioned hair sign there. I want to say that you know, I'm not a fan of Iskara's computer coloring at all, and in particular in these stories, it feels weirdly light. It feels weirdly like the as if it's dropped. It's been artificially brightened in a, mm-hmm. in a few stories but he's that man can still draw the shit out of anything oh for uh, sure yeah the paul johnson art i think is pretty good john burns and statue of judgment i think is really good i there's some great art in here but also there's some terrible art in this book <laughs> yes yeah I there agree. really is a thing that's really weak art. honestly the weakest art for me in this book might be the chris foss art from jigsaw Mm-hmm. Which, as I said before, like Jigsaw is a story that fails on every single level for me. Yeah, and part of that is Chris Fossar. I think is is really just dull more than anything. Mm-hmm. 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 It's it's very boring in a way that that you know I remember Chris Foss being a big deal in in science fiction art. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you can't see why from that story. <laughs> no, you really can't. You really can't. Um, although again, yeah, it sort of fell apart. You know, it's funny you mentioned that it's, it's interesting. I was like looking at this, I'm like, Oh, right. Like honestly, bad friends also feels weirdly like Wagner outdoing Ennis at Ennis's old game. Cause you know, it's very much a, here's an assassin hired to kill dread. Like everything else about it is different, but I, I liked bad friends a lot. And one of the things that's great about it is Escara's, um, Escara does the Vitus's Vitus dance, who is the, the cursed earth assassin who's hired to, um, take care of the, the guy that, that dread has, um, arrested and is trying to break to get him to give up the names of the uh of the friends the charitable fund that is actually a a gangster conglomeration cartel type thing um vitus dance says maybe like one tenth of the things that johnny kiss gets to do um and is so much cooler in part among other things, <laughs> because Esker does a fabulous job with him, the, the design of him and the character's acting. He's just, he's just a creepy motherfucker. And it just, that story works really well. It's kind of funny. I realize I'm like, oh shit, we're going to get out here without talking about bad friends, which is like a six part story by Wagner as Escara. And I, I liked it a mm-hmm. lot. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's really, Again, it feels fast moving. It feels like it's got a sense of humor. It feels like it's going somewhere, but also it feels like it's not taking itself overly seriously mm-hmm. and it's not trying to build a mythology. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's not it's not like going well, you know of course they've sent in the, the guy from the cursor to take care of Dread because it's Dread and then Dread's gonna get him because he's Dread and you don't see, you know, an entire chapter of Dread and him fighting that ends up with Dread standing on his corpse afterwards being like, I am the law. (laughs) It's totally true. It's totally true. And yet there's a lot of really cool, satisfying fucking moments with it where Dread and Dance as they quote unquote fight, you know, where suddenly, you know, Dread is like, shit, what the fuck am I doing? I'm like, 
you know, on Morrison Express, a Morrissey Expressway, and he totally got inside my head and and screwed me up. Like, it's it's fun. Or even the sequence where um, you're following Castillo and uh, Dread, and they're talking about the conflagration that just happened. Like their witness literally just burst into flame. And they're talking about it and you realize that they are in the same elevator as dance and kind of don't realize it. And it's such a, it's a great sequence because it's really, again, Wagner and Escara like underplay it, you know, which is, which is the part that makes it even cooler than the super big sequence where the witness bursts into flame because dance's powers of pyrokinesis are um are kick-ass you know like yeah yeah it's no it's 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 really fun it's such a fun and yet uh exciting and thrilling story yeah it it doesn't feel the needs to to oversell it i guess yes no absolutely absolutely yeah it's it's uh it really it it's um it's just there's some pretty masterful stuff going on in here which is which I think is really important. Like, I feel like there's a lot that that someone who wants to understand kind of how story how storytelling works. Like, there's stuff in here. Like, the, the sequence where, you know, um, you get a sequence where Dance and Dread have their little showdown. And as you point out, it's not like Garth Ennis's big, you know nine pages of them punching one another and then, you know, dread roaring, I am the law. In fact, what happens is Wagner throws in this great thing of because it's happening by the side of this expressway, like this auto robot starts trying to sell insurance to them. And so the 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 background where like the fight's happening and the Mega Guard robot is like, if you're seriously injured for any reason, Mega Guard will pay all your hospital expenses and give you an incredibly large lump sum as well. Is I mean that's just it's just great. Like there's so Wagner is so masterful in this volume at points that just like nobody can touch him. And it's interesting because of course I can even say that on stuff like bad friends, which is really enjoyable. Not even like, again, I would not necessarily, I didn't pick it as my favorite story in the volume. I literally forgot to mention it until we were, you know, over an hour and a half into our discussion. Um, But I'm like, Oh yeah, that's really good. You should read it. There's lots of really great stuff in it. You know, Which I think is is again a sign that this is a good book, right? This yes, good, good absolutely. Book. Yeah, yeah. That that there can be something that both of us are like, oh yeah, that was great. That we forgot. Yes, exactly, exactly. As opposed to some of the other volumes where I'm going to be like, where you're like, yeah, let's talk about how that one guy drew a hand. That was one hell of a hand, wasn't it? You know. So yep, yeah. Definitely, twenty three was a was a good volume. For to us, I would say, I am uh, to, to sort of look ahead for a bit. I'm really looking forward to 24. I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to your response to 24 in particular, because mm. 24 has the pit in it. Oh, the pit! I said a couple of of episodes ago that we're heading towards 
Wagner doing something different the the setup of of dread and, and with the formula of dread and the pit is it the pit is a, a an attempt to for the first time honestly since i mean luna one maybe all the way back like in the first couple of years of the series to change the status quo without making it a story huh you know like you have you have you know necropolis or the cursed earth or oz where the series undergoes a significant change. Right. But it's in service of one plot. And the pit isn't. It only it only lasts about the same length. In fact, I think it's shorter than any of those mega epics. Wow. But it's an attempt to to change the status quo in the same way that, that uh Luna One did. By huh. by making Dread's mission different. Hmm. hmm. That I'm looking forward to to seeing how you respond. Yeah, that sounds very, very intriguing, I have to say. Uh, and also, one of the interesting things about next episode is the magazine stories in next episode are almost entirely by people other than Wagner. Hmm. So that can, that the trend that we see here continues of... Yeah, picks yeah. up. There's a lot more Robbie Morrison. There's, uh, there's some John Smith in there. There's some Gordon Rennie in there, I think. Yeah, there is, it's a bunch of, of non-Wagner writers. Wagner does maybe a story, maybe a couple of stories. But for the most part, it's non-Wagner writers in the magazine material. So I, it, I think it's going to be a, a, a continuing evolution from what we're seeing here. But in a way that I'm, I'm excited about, because I think the evolution that we see here is, is something that we both appreciate. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next, the next volume, and, and very much. Uh, I, I should wrap things up because we're heading up in the, another hour mark of recording, which means I'm going to go buzzy. Yep. Uh, there will be show notes for this episode up on Monday at some point on waywhatpodcasts.com. One of these days, I may or may not, I'm just being honest, you guys, uh, <laughs> update uh, waywhatpods.tumblr.com and instagram.com forward slash waywhatpods. And we have a Twitter account at Wait What Podcast. Jeff has a Twitter account at LazyBastard at L A Z Y B A S T I D. And I have a Twitter account at Graham M at G R A E M E M. And uh, we have a Patreon account, which means Jeff is going to start doing his whole thing right now. Take it away. <laughs> my, my whole thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have to say, the great thing about sort of talking about uh, the wonder that is you listeners at the end of a drock is uh, I am always, as you know, always grateful for the ears um, that uh, allow us to continue to keep blabbing about comic books after all these years and keeping us interested and excited and dropping us notes on uh, either the Gmail or, um, on our Twitter accounts, uh, asking us questions, keeping a, keeping us uh, kind of focused and feeling supported, which is great. But uh, there's also Patreon, where a number of people who are able to and feel uh, the feel the desire to throw us a little bit of their hard earned dosh, which is great. Um, I've heard from a few people this week who sort of mentioned that they've listened to us for literally something like five years and 
can't afford the dosh but would love to you know make it up to us in in other ways and and honestly just putting up with our shenanigans i think is is honestly enough but the fact that the people uh, on patreon throw throw a little bit of their hard-earned cash our way is fabulous and is put us on to for me a really amazing adventure as you know Baxter Building, which was our uh, read-through of the first 416 issues of the Fantastic Four, and Drock, this very podcast here, both exist because of meeting stretch goals uh, that we set where we did an extra podcast, and I am incredibly grateful for it because I am... Uh, really exposed to Dread and to Wagner and the world of 2000 AD in a in a in a way that um, I would, can all but guarantee I never would have had the in if not for the listener support. So I'm incredibly grateful for it. Um, give a super shout out to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for continuing support of this podcast and. Uh, the old celestial cosmos around us, uh, keeping us um, safe and protected, more or less, uh, from harm. Graham? I, I like the more or less. <laughs> <laughs> you know, protected-ish. Protect, Protected-ish, Jason. <laughs> exactly. We're not, we're not going to say anything more than that. Like, it could be worse, is what mm-hmm. you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to say, just to go back to something you said a second ago, People who have been listening to us for for five years, you've done a lot as is. Yes. <laughs> Don't feel like you have to do something else. <laughs> yeah. You no. Exactly. Been that long. Bless you, and we're sorry. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 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 My point. Bless you, and we're sorry. Uh, so, Grandpa. Well, bless you, and you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so we'll be back in a month with another drock. As you said, we'll be reading. Uh, the Pit, is that what you said? Um, is... Yes, well, we're going to be reading Case Files 24, right. which includes The Pit and a number of other stories okay. in there. There's there's a lot. I'm very much looking forward to it. Well, that's fabulous. Okay. Uh, I am too. And we are back next week with a another Wait What? So, But uh, because this is a drug, Jeff... You sing us out. Oh, I suppose that's true. Yeah, this is around the time where I say, Drock, you're under arrest, citizen. Report to the isocubes. We'll see you in 30. <laughs>